Leviticus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. This is God's word. You know, the movie uh, Chariots of Fire remains uncontested uh, in my top five movies of all time. Uh, The story is one of, uh, uh, that tells a story about two Olympic uh, runners uh, who are striving for the same prize, actually in the exact same race. But, But they're two completely different people. On the one hand, you have this character named Eric Little. Little is a Scottish missionary to China who has a very super pious uh, little sister who quite honestly always looks very disapprovingly on all this running business. Till one point in the movie, Little has to look at her and say, you know, Jenny, you have to understand God made me for China. I know that. But you know what? God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. The other character is a guy by the name of Harold Abrahams. Abrahams is quite different. Brilliant son of the Jewish working class. Abrahams actually, um, right before the big race, they have a wonderful scene where he's confiding in a very dear friend of his. And he looks at him, he says, you know something, the truth is, I have never known contentment. I am forever in pursuit. And I've gotten to where I don't even know what it is that I'm chasing Look, both of these guys, the the, the equal gifted athletes in pursuit of excellence, yet one of them is filled with joy as they do. The other one is filled with discontentment. Same job, same ability, same career, same training. And yet one person goes into it with confidence and joy, and the other person goes at it with insecurity and fear. Look, tonight I want you to do me a favor. Which of those two characters in that movie comes the closest to describing the language of your heart? Look, Leviticus 23 brings us into one of the last of these big categories of Jewish life that are delineated in this book. And we've seen that God gives all kinds of instructions to various areas. There's there's four of them, actually. God has told them how they are to behave throughout these sacred places, sacred spaces, where the the temple and the tabernacle go and where the operations in the tabernacle happen. Secondly, he's told them this unbelievable uh, detailed instructions of how to act, these sacred acts. 
And we also saw how he carved out these sacred people, the priests, and how they were to function in the life of these people. Sacred space, sacred acts, sacred people. Tonight we find out that God has sacred time. Sacred time. Time that is carved out that's especially uh, given to them to stop and to commemorate him. Now look, before we actually consider why God would ever do something like this, I want you to, um, to think about something in application to our own lives. Look, these ancient people did these things because they established for them this rhythm to life. There was sort of a daily warp and woof, a pattern, as it were, that established the way that they looked at the world. In other words, it was meant, these holidays that they were given were meant to picture an inner rest, an inner rest that they were supposed to exemplify to the rest of the world. Look, you're naive if you don't realize how hard it is for us to understand this. I've been thinking about this a lot, and it seems to me that the, 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 the glut of technological uh, uh, innovation of which you are all children thereof, <laughs> and I'm one of those too. I love the gadgets. I love the toys. But that glut of information, in my opinion, has kind of made it to where there's almost never a time in which you're not on. Do you know what I mean by this? It, there's almost never a time where there's not some access that I have to uh, endless media sources of input. And, you know, I've begun to wonder which is the cause and which is the effect. I mean, is it that we're restless because we're constantly receiving these messages from the outside world, whether it be through text messaging or our cell phone or the Internet or our email? Or... Is it that we crave the constant input because we're so restless? Look, God has basically said that no matter what you say, my people are not going to live their lives driven like that. That's not going to be what describes my people. And so what he does is he masterminds for them a calendar of all things. A calendar where they were to mark off their seasons so that they could learn huge lessons. And I think one lesson, it's the one lesson I want to give you to tonight. And it's the lesson of rest. Look, tonight I want you to see three things. I want you to first of all see the connection between these holidays and the, uh, what Jesus comes to do. I want you to see the big principle behind it. And then lastly, a little bit of the practice as we try to apply it. Okay, first of all, the connection. Look, uh, reading through chapter 23 can be just as painfully boring as the other chapters that I've inflicted upon you this uh, semester. But I promise you, just like hopefully those other chapters that we've read through, you'll see that there's method in the madness when you start to make the connection that when Jesus comes so many thousands of years later, he uses this holiday calendar. Um... Almost as a template, can I use that word? A, a, a template to sort of show uh, the truths that he's trying to bring about himself. Uh, you get a list in Leviticus 23 of about seven of them. I just want to run through about half of those to let you see an example of this. Bear with me for a second. I realize this sounds tedious, but uh, you're a better person for listening to this. Um, first of all, the year began for a Jew, not with New Year's Day, but it began on a day called Passover. 
You see, while their ethnic people were enslaved in Egypt so many years ago, uh, the angel of death had come through the camp and and crushed the Jewish oppressors uh, by killing every firstborn in the land. And the only reason why the Jewish children actually survived that uh, holocaust was because the night before they killed a lamb and they spread the blood from this lamb over their doorposts and then they sat down and ate a meal. It was the feast of Passover that God instructed them to do. It was a reminder to them that God was the one who delivers. So there's no wonder why Jesus, on the night before his own death, chooses the night before uh, uh, this particular holiday, the night before Passover, to sit down with his disciples for a meal, you guessed it, and say that he was now the lamb that was going to be slain so that literally God's wrath would pass over them. Paul makes it explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In other words, these early people saw this holiday as being about Jesus. Secondly, there was another feast that was celebrated at the very beginning of the harvest season, which was a big time during those uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures. It was called the Feast of First Fruits. And what happened is, is they would gather a portion of their harvest, uh, uh, grain or whatever else, and they would take it and bundle it up, bear with me, <laughs> and they would start to wave it into the air, literally, just kind of wave it out in front for everybody to see. And what it was, was an acknowledgement to God, right, that God was the one who had provided their daily bread. God, you've given us this, see, <laughs> look what I did. It's kind of a funny thought. And Paul picks up on that imagery again in 1 Corinthians when he comes in and says in verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the, here's the word, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, God, Paul is saying that God was in the business and of course had been for thousands of years of providing everything that his people needed. That's the way they understood him. Thirdly, there's this whole uh, feast called the Feast of Weeks. This comes later on in chapter 23. We didn't get to read about these last couple ones. But 50 days after the day of Passover, which was uh, seven weeks plus one day, the Jews would celebrate this Feast of Weeks. Now, this was a giant celebration. Tons of sacrifices and and days of feasting. It was a big festival. Interestingly enough, there's a whole lot of mention in that feast about how they were supposed to take care of the poor on that day. Look, little wonder that when the disciples were gathered in the temple, it was on this feast day, or later became known as Pentecost, sort of for the 50-day reference, that's where that came from. God brings in the Holy Spirit to convert 3,000 people who started that day following Jesus. In other words, the feast had anticipated a great harvest of souls, if you will, that God was bringing in. Jesus knew these things. That's why they happened that way. Finally, they had this weird one um, called the Feast of Booths, uh, B-O-O-T-H-S. This was a fun one. This was where the the Jewish people got to construct these little little houses, these little uh, forts. My children love to make forts, right? Uh, they made these things out of sticks and they would actually go out and camp out in these things as a way of remembering back about how God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. A way of looking back during that. By the time Jesus came along, there was a little extra added ritual that had happened in Jerusalem at this time. 
where one of the priests would actually walk down to a pool that was uh, just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And he would get a great big bucket of that water and march back up to the temple. And he would stand on the front steps, just like I'm standing here, and would pour the water out in front of the temple. What was he doing? Well, he was recalling a prophecy that was made back in the book of Ezekiel, of all places, chapter 47, where God made a promise that at one time the Holy Spirit would come gushing out of the temple and change the whole world, restoring the entire land. Little wonder, then, that Jesus, on the very last day of that particular feast, stands up in John chapter 7 and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come after me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. Okay, do you see where I'm going with this? (laughs) All of these feasts were ultimately about Jesus. That was the idea he was trying to get across, that they were fulfilled. And these people's very calendar said something to the world about what God had done. Does that make sense? Okay, so what's the principle? Second question. What's the principle behind all this? Look. Remember what we talked about last week, how all of these instructions that come after the Day of Atonement are given to explain to people about how they're supposed to be holy. And I love how counter it is to the old Miss mindset (laughs) that God is basically saying this, you are the most holy when you learn how to rest. I love this thought, (laughs) and I can't stop thinking about it. You are the most holy when you have learned to rest. Look, for most of us, the very word holiness sort of, um, it makes us a little nervous, doesn't it? And the first thing we think about when it comes to holiness is, man, I got to get busy. I'm behind. I don't even know if I'm holy at all. And we got to get busy. Look, I heard one pastor one time say, look, there's, there's three ways in which you can look at the pursuit of holiness in wrong ways. I've been talking about this this week. So for those of you who've been going to the small group Bible studies, this will be a little bit of repeat for you. The, the first way you can look at holiness is the kind of um, mechanical approach. That is, in order to be a good Christian, you just need these three easy steps. <laughs> Five easy processes for you to go through in order to have a better prayer life, the books say. Uh, it's almost like Christianity becomes a new form of like diet program. That's the mechanistic approach. Uh, the, the second one is what he called the moralistic approach. You see, the moralistic approach is where you, you basically adopt a brand new set of rules. And you just kind of got to listen to those rules enough to where it makes you well up enough well, uh, willpower to just stop doing whatever it is you're not supposed to be doing. The moralistic approach. The last one is what we call the mystical approach. The mystical approach is where you sit there and you wait and you concentrate or you pray enough or you read your Bible enough or whatever it is until finally all of a sudden while you're just kind of sitting there, whoosh, some force comes over you, the the Holy Spirit maybe, and suddenly you just become a holy person, right? (laughs) But here's what I want you to notice about all three of those ways in which people typically try to get holy. They all measure holiness in terms of you. Every one of them measure the way in which you are measuring up to God's standard by your efforts. But did you notice what, they, what, what God does? Is he cuts right across all of these perspectives. I think this is fascinating. And he says, no, 
my people are not going to do that. They're not going to define themselves by what they do because they can't define themselves by what they do. They're going to be holy. My people are going to be holy for one reason and one reason only. Please don't miss this. (laughs) That's because I made them holy. That's the reason why my people are going to be purified is because I'm the one who's been responsible for it. And so therefore, on a regular basis... (laughs) I want them to stop working to demonstrate that fact and to show that they believe it. To actually set everything aside. You know what? The truth of the matter is I could probably get a whole lot more done, but I'm not going to do it. Why? Because God has made it to where I don't have to. Because the work has been his. Don't you realize how strange that is? Look, um, the, the feast days was God's command to say, I want you to tell the world that I'm the one who accomplished your salvation, not you. Benjamin Franklin, of all people, it's always good to be able to pull out a quote from Ben Franklin. He said, he that can take rest is greater than he that can take cities. Well said. You know what he means? He means that there's a very deep sort of REM rest that you can never get from a long nap. One of my favorite illustrations of this was a book that I was uh, forced to read when I was in college. I wonder how many of you have ever uh, been made to read any of uh, Franz Kafka. Uh, Maybe you English majors have had a chance to read some of the bright, sunny passages of Kafka. Uh, Not the least of which is a, a book called The Trial. Uh, if you've not heard of it, I'll give you sort of the, how lovely this really is. Uh, the trial basically pictures a story of a man who is woken up in the middle of the night only to be arrested by the police. Uh, and the problem, though, is, is no one will tell him what he's been arrested for. Uh, and literally the entire book is this poor fool being shuffled around from place to place to place But he has no idea what he's done wrong until by the very end of the book, literally this is how the book ends, he's taken out and shot in the head where he dies like a dog. Not the feel-good beach reading of the summer. I'll grant you that. And you wonder exactly what it was that Kafka should have given up in order to stop writing literature like this. But I think actually I want to advocate for Franz Kafka tonight. Here's for Franz. I think people that are perceptive like him understand something. Think about it. Here's a guy who is rushing around trying to figure out how to quiet the judge and jury inside his own head. Hmm. Does that sound familiar to you? Look, I think what Kafka is saying is what everyone feels and what I think is actually epidemic on this campus And that is that there always feels like there's this verdict that's coming down on us from on high. And you know what that verdict is? Guilty. You're guilty. You never measure up. It's not just that we feel wrong sometimes, but that we suspect that we are wrong. Like to our core. Look, this is what I think the principle of the feast days is saying. No one rests until you have quieted that yearning inside of your heart. Until you can get rid of that voice that is constantly hanging over you saying, guilty. By the way, do you recognize how this is entirely possible that very religious people, (laughs) religious people who would be religious enough to skip a swap tonight to come to a Bible study, (laughs) 
that it's very possible for even religious people to be doing what they're doing in order to quiet that voice, to try to somehow get a different verdict that would come on inside of their heads. Look, this is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, stands up and says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look, Jesus is not talking about a nap. (laughs) Nor is he, interestingly enough, talking about these festivals that came in Leviticus chapter 23. What he's saying is, is I am telling you what those festivals were pointing to. In other words, I'm telling you what those festivals were about. And what they were about is, is you're not going to rest until you admit that you're hiding from that truth. That there's a voice inside your head that's constantly pronouncing you to be guilty. And so much of your speeding and your fussing about is simply because you have not yet owned up to the fact that your busyness can't fix the problem. It can't fix it. Um... You know, when I, was in, um, when I was in college, I met a man in a Bible study that I used to go to. I had a very interesting um, group of men that I used to meet with on a regular basis for about six months, my senior year of college. And um, all of them were wrestling with various and sundry things. Uh, one man uh, in the group was struggling because by his own admission... Uh, At that time, he was taking somewhere between 10 and 15 showers every day. Hmm. Now, I know what we do for those kinds of things. We look and we say, ah, we have a neat little psychological word for that. That man has obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, But here's the deal. I don't think that you need to be a psychiatrist to look and say, um, I don't think that what you're going through is really about the dirt on your body. <laughs> you know, to look at that man and say, 15 showers, nobody could be that dirty, is incredibly naive. There's something else that's going on. And there's a part of me that wonders that when I look at the rat race that is described as a college education at Ole Miss... And the wild-eyed busyness and frenetic pace of your schedules, I kind of want to look and go, no offense, but I'm starting to wonder whether or not this is really about education or not. Look, y'all, the feast days that God instituted were a way of looking and saying, I want you to know that if you don't pay greater attention to this voice inside of your head and allowing me to quiet that voice, you are going to be a victim of spiritual OCD. Where you are obsessed, compulsive, (laughs) disordered because of that voice inside of our head. Look, y'all, the hymn writer got it really right when he looked and said, look, coming to Jesus is like this. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet and stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. Look, the promise of the gospel was to extend to us a quieting of that voice so we could get off the spinning wheel. That whether it comes out or not is still in our own heads. Okay, so here's the last question then. What does that look like? We've seen sort of the connection between these feast, uh, feast days and Jesus. We see the principle about rest. 
what does that look like? How do we celebrate this? Well, that, the question still remains, right? Now listen, before we start to apply this to our own lives, you've got to remember how the other sacred spheres of life were treated. Do you remember this? When we talked about the sacred people, the priest, we realized that they were fulfilled in Christ, our ultimate high priest, right? When we talked about the sacred space, the temple and the tabernacle as special places for God's uh, presence, we found that Jesus was the temple. He came to be the new temple, right? We found that the sacred acts, the sacrifices, were themselves also fulfilled in Christ, okay? So therefore, all that we saw was fulfilled in Christ. And so therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus comes along to fulfill our sacred time as well. Look, in these feasts, Jesus fulfilled those as well. And so in other words, for the Christian, all time is sacred. It's really not going that far to say that God has basically instituted a way of seeing the world that is defined by a party. (laughs) No offense. Oftentimes when I hear you talk about your Christian life, no one would ever mistake that for a party. And what that, might, what that makes me realize is we might have missed something in the passage. By doing what Jesus did, Jesus said, I'm going to infuse every single moment of a Christian's day with significance. It's all rest for you. Every bit of it. <laughs> the whole thing. Because we've gotten to that little nagging voice inside your head. The things outside of you no longer have to define you. This is a beautiful thought. However, that does not mean I would not submit, I would submit to you that all of these feast days are absolutely obliterated. I think far from it. Because when you go through and you read through these feasts, you'll find that there was one that was the anchor of them all. There was one day that sort of overarched all the rest of the feast days. And it was one day at the end of every week that was known as the Sabbath The word Sabbath, the very word means rest. In other words, the Jewish people already had built into their lifetime, into their lifestyle, a rhythm of life. One day in seven where they put everything aside and they just rested. Not necessarily just physically, although that was part of it, but mostly it was a spiritual resting. Hebrews 4 says this, it says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Y'all, I want to introduce some of you for the first time to the fourth commandment. <laughs> right up in there with the list of murdering and, and committing adultery, for goodness sakes, is God's command that one day in seven you set it aside as being different and special. And at this point, most people start to get all worked up about it. Well, here we go. We're going to get all legalistic on me and tell me the things I can't do on Sunday and blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, look, before you head down that road, bear with me for a second. And let me remind you of, a, of an illustration that I've used before uh, that I was reminded of by a guy who really helped me with this uh, sermon. My friend who's the RUF campus minister at, uh, at Winthrop University, Jeff Ferguson, reminded me of an illustration that I'd heard once where he said, look, these feasts that God gives to his people are a, little bit about, are a little bit like a man who gives a rose to his lover. 
Think about that. The rose, you know, it's beautiful. It's exquisite. It's a visible thing. It's, it's, it's tangible. It's real. You can, you can smell it. You can take it in in some sense, right? But have you noticed that the rose itself is never intended to be the object of the beloved's affections? You would think it kind of weird if, you know, after the man had given the young lady a rose, that the woman took the rose and was like, oh, I'm in love with it, and started kissing the petals of the rose. You would think she got it wrong. You're like, no, 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 you don't understand. You see, the rose was intended to be a symbol of what you have in your lover. The rose itself is just a sign of that. Look, the reason why I use that illustration is because at this point, everybody starts getting all bent out of shape saying, well, you know, Les, what is it right and what is it not right to do on the Lord's Day? Look, I simply want you to consider three things as we finish with this. First, this says, if nothing else, that the point of the Lord's Day, a day of rest, is so that we can go and find Jesus. This is the reason why the people of God go figure, decided they would get together on Sundays. That regular weekly worship was a pattern of these people's existence because they knew that when I was among God's people, I would find God. Jesus said, we're two or more gathered there. I'll be with them. And we think that he's going to be with us in this kind of mystical kind of, I don't know, misty sense. Like y'all, Jesus is here. (laughs) No, he's saying, you'll find me in the face of the other person. Every one of you here tonight are Jesus to me and I to you because we're gathered in the name of Christ. First of all, we're there to find Jesus. That's what Sundays are for, that they're intended for us to see something about him. And so therefore, rather than getting bent all out of shape about what you can and cannot do, I found it simple to take a nice principle. Whatever you do six days of the week, don't do it on Sunday. It's as simple as you can get. If you are an electrician, don't repair electronics on Sunday, whatever, whatever it is electricians do. If you're an accountant, don't what? Account on Sunday. If you're a student, hmm, what does that say about taking a day off from the tyranny of that schedule, y'all? Look, that's the first thing. Secondly, I think it's worth us asking, if I never give my lover roses, then I might not be in love. If I never actually know how to receive something from my lover, then it may well be that I'm not in love. Look, I think there's something to be said that if I've not actually understood this rest, is it possible that I've not understood Christianity at all? Look, I'm not trying to scare people when I say stuff like that. But isn't it worth asking at least to be honest and say, maybe one of the reasons why I'm so stressed out is because I've never understood this principle of rest. Is, is it possible that Jesus is just one more figure tyrannizing your conscience? I, I wonder for how many of us, Jesus is nothing more than a great big wagging finger. Need to go to RUF tonight, doggone it. You know, see how, hopefully it outweighs all the other bad stuff you've done this week. Look, it brings me to the third point. It's something that I want you to consider very carefully. If if all of this is true, it means that Jesus is holding out a rose to you. If there really is a Sabbath rest, like the writer of Hebrews says, it very well may be that at this very moment in these feast days of all places, 
God commands his people to take a day off and to celebrate and have a humongous feast and to live like life as if it really was a big party. (laughs) What if he's holding up that rose to you right now and saying, come to me, you who are burdened and worn out. I'm here to give you rest. And that's more than just a nap. It's the ability to quiet that voice on the inside that tyrannized me. That's at the heart of it all. Because if we have that, (laughs) we might could face tomorrow in a different way, wouldn't we? That's an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you do that for us? We don't even know any other way to ask it other than to ask for that. Do that. (laughs) Lord Jesus, I would even pray for my own heart as, as we struggle all the time, even in ministry trying to keep busy enough, being uh, measuring my own righteousness by how busy I was that week, how many hours I logged in at the office. So, Lord, if, if, if I'm struggling with it, then I know my friends here in this room are too. And that for very many of us, we feel like we've been on a treadmill for a very long time. We're tired at the end of this semester, but it's a bigger tire than just not having gotten enough sleep. Because the tired has gotten in and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you extend that to all of my friends and to me included tonight? That maybe when we walked out of here, there might be a sigh. There might be those limp arms to the side that have looked up and have wept before you and saying, I'm just tired. I'm so tired. And that you might be able to speak rest to all of our hearts so that we can get off the treadmill and get about the business of proclaiming the party that you've come to establish. Lord, it would be wonderful if that was true. Would you do it in us tonight? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.